Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data with another Wednesday Night Wars edition, while we still have them at least, of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to talk all things NXT, but more importantly this week, all things AEW as we provide an ultimate preview for AEW Revolution coming up this Sunday, not Saturday, on pay-per-view. We have a ton to cover on today's show, talking NXT, one little bit of NJPW, and a ton of AEW leading into their first major pay-per-view of 2021. We're going to break all of that down on today's show, but you guys know the deal. You've listened to us enough. We got to take care of business before we get to that. Number one, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, especially this week. It's a great opportunity for you to participate in pre-show polls and post-show polls throughout AEW Revolution. We also do first release notifications for all of our shows, and we tweet about wrestling and wrestling news all week long. So do not forget to follow us at Getting Overcast. And of course, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and review. You know on this show, it is all about the five. Let us know how much you love this program. Let other people know how much you like listening to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and hopefully they will listen too. Our audience will grow, and we'll be able to do a lot more new fun things that you all can enjoy. So the way today's show is going to work, as I said, we're talking NXT. We're talking briefly less than five minutes, NJPW, and we're also going to talk AEW. That's the primary focus of today's show. Like every single episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, our episode descriptions have timestamps. So if you want to jump to AEW, that's all you care about, you can do that. If you just want to listen to NXT, you can find out when that starts on the show, and you can kind of jump to exactly what you want to listen to. But my hope, as always, is that you listen to the entire show, because Both of these programs, NXT, AEW, both brands are great wrestling, and I watch them, I love them, and I hope that you do as well. Because AEW is going to be the heaviest lift on today's show, we're going to talk about everything that happened on Dynamite and an ultimate preview for AEW Revolution. That will be the latter segment on the show. We are going to open with NXT, and the news of the week regarding NXT is not actually anything that happened on television but rather reports unconfirmed at this time that NXT will be looking to move to Tuesday beginning in April, possibly April 13th. Now, if we're to operate on this report being accurate, because certainly in order for me to give a take about it, it would have to be accurate. I would need to say that I'm of a mixed mind here. You know, on one hand, the idea of NXT and AEW separating and being on different nights is good because you get to kind of watch each in its own universe theoretically, You would expect ratings for NXT and AEW to both go up. How much? We don't really know. It seems like there's a crossover audience of about 100 to 200,000 people. So maybe AEW starts cracking regularly, that 1 million mark. Maybe NXT gets into the 800,000, 900,000 on occasion. So, you know, both shows, I think, from a network standpoint, would benefit from being separate. On the other hand, there's something about that head-to-head competition that kind of like reignited a lot of passion in wrestling. And I know that on the same side, you can say, well, one person's passion is another person's tribalism, and things have been really kind of negative online, at least, regarding NXT and AEW. And honestly, really, when it comes to people who listen to the early parts of the show, that I would criticize AEW, and they couldn't take it because they felt I was being way too positive for one and way too negative for another, when that was never the case. You judge each individual show, each individual brand as its own product, and you talk about what you do and don't like. And AEW has made significant strides from the way it began you know, over a year ago at this point. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm of a mixed mind about the entire thing. The other thing to take into consideration, and I, I know that Impact and AEW Dark are both on Tuesdays. Those do exist. But I don't watch them. I don't watch Impact regularly. Dark, I never watch just because it's too much wrestling. And really, I know that some storylines connect, but it's mostly unimportant to the Dynamite product. I kind of liked having two days off each week, not watching wrestling. 
You know you watch wrestling Monday, Wednesday, Friday, occasionally a Saturday, usually also on a Sunday if there's a pay-per-view. That's four to five days already a week of wrestling. To put NXT on a Tuesday night, that means I could possibly be watching wrestling Sunday through Wednesday, only get Thursday off, then back on Friday, and then if there's possibly an event of some type on, on Saturday, could be watching six out of seven days. And that's assuming AEW doesn't come in and say, okay, now we're going to do a another show and that show is going to be on Thursday. Because supposedly there's supposed to be a, a second TV show coming and we don't know what date that's going to be. AEW was never, it seemed, going to be on Thursday in the first place because of NBA on TNT. Maybe if it's on a different channel, that won't be an issue. So there's a lot of stuff up in the air. And I know that you guys, huge fans, are going to say, well, hey, Silver King, you're not even mentioning NXT UK on the network. Okay, NXT UK is Thursday. So if you included UK and you, you know, in the past certainly could have included Impact, there's supposedly going to be an NJPW show uh, coming to a major US television network sooner than later. You're talking about possibly wrestling Monday through Friday that may need to get watched. And as someone who is very busy, you know, candidly, not only do I talk wrestling every week for you guys, twice on this show, uh, but I cover sports for a living. It's my full-time job. And man, there's a lot of sports to watch, <laughs> you know, especially during football season. So things are starting to get pretty intense. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, this isn't necessarily talking to whether the move is good or bad for NXT. From a personal standpoint, it makes things more difficult for me. The one thing I will say is I did miss When Raw was on Monday and SmackDown was on Tuesday, the intensity and the excitement of being able to go pay-per-view Sunday, Raw, SmackDown, in consecutive order, that's three days, it was really interesting, really good wrestling, and I do not like that SmackDown's on Friday. But I don't have a choice. I'm not going to be able to go tell Fox and USA, hey guys, yeah, take SmackDown off Friday, put it on Wednesday, let's say, and let's go one, two, three, like, you know, they used to in WWE. So I just... I'm in a tight spot personally as it relates to this news. We'll see what happens if it actually goes down and how I ultimately enjoy or don't enjoy NXT being on Tuesday nights if that happens. But I do personally like the idea of sitting down Wednesday at 8 p.m. and watching three and a half hours because you can take out commercials for one program, three and a half hours of wrestling and then just being done until Friday. And the fact that that's going to change you know, maybe isn't the best thing for me personally, but for the shows, NXT, and certainly for AEW, I think it may benefit both of them in the long run. So that's my general take about what may happen from a scheduling standpoint. Let's actually talk about the wrestling that went down Wednesday night, and we will start with NXT. Roderick Strong wants answers. Strong hit the ring, demanded, and then pleaded for Adam Cole to explain himself for his attack last week and his prior attacks on Kyle O'Reilly. Instead, Finn Balor's music hit. He suggested Cole would only come out for the NXT champion, while Strong said everything in Undisputed Era was fine until Balor came around. Balor challenged Cole unprompted and put the title on the line next week. He said Strong will never be a leader, just a follower. He's not greedy enough. He's not selfish enough to actually be champion. Strong attacked uh, Balor. They brawled until the referee separated them. I actually thought it was a surprisingly hot segment. You normally, when you put a mic in Roderick Strong's hand and he's operating on his own, he generally doesn't do that good of a job. And yes, you could say some of the intonation and the belief in what he was saying wasn't there, but Balor really made up for it a lot. It was an intense segment. They brawled well. And I was definitely excited for the main event, which ended up being Finn Balor against Roderick Strong, a match that had it been promoted probably would have done a lot better for NXT, which I do think is going to ultimately get pretty beat down in the ratings this week against AEW. Had they promoted this as the main event, I think that would have been very helpful. Instead, they just kind of announced it in early in the first hour of the show, hoping people were watching and then would stay tuned for that match. So the match went down, backbreakers, running elbows, galore per usual uh, for Strong. And that's not a complaint. That's just how he wrestles. Uh, I enjoy it. Strong hit a double underhook powerbomb for a near fall. There was an incredible GTS counter into a double foot stomp by Balor that set up the finish as Balor hit a missile dropkick, coup de gras, and 1916 for the win. Cole never interfered, but he did appear on stage after the match basically to advertise the title match next week, which 
is kind of coming out of nowhere, but in storyline makes sense based on what Cole has done the last couple of weeks. I also love that Balor was the one to issue the challenge, not Cole. Him being confident enough as champion to say, okay, I know why you're doing this. You want the title? Why don't we, you know, go contest it? I'll put it on the line, calling Cole out, giving him a reason to show up and presumably, at least in Balor's mind, get his ass kicked. So I, I like that. That was very NJPW with the champion being the one to make the challenge. Next week's NXT is going to be absolutely insane. It's really surprising they didn't brand it and make it a special show. I don't really understand why they're not doing that. Not only are we getting Finn Balor against Adam Cole for the NXT title, a match that could main event any takeover. We're also getting another potential takeover main event on the same show between Io Shirai and Tony Storm for the NXT Women's Championship. There was a really good video package for this match. Shirai said she respected but didn't like Storm as a person. This is another situation where I'd like them to do a live confrontation or a brawl or a contract signing instead of just a short video package for a title match. You're going to hear the same criticism come AEW's way in the next segment. I didn't like the way they promoted their main event, and I don't like the way NXT promotes its main event big matches. We need more. You got to give people a reason to tune into your show, and a three-minute video package generally isn't enough. When they go longer and they do a 10 or 15-minute video package with a commercial in between, a prime target is what it's called. Okay, at least there's a lot of effort and production put into that. But something short like this, it doesn't really sell the fact that Io Shirai is a dominant champion and Tony Storm is a top tier challenger. And I need to be told that if I'm a fan who's maybe a little bit more casual and needs a reason to tune in next week. So that overall was the biggest storyline on NXT. And the second biggest one was the advertised women's tag team title match, Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler coming into NXT from Raw to take on Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez. Jax ragdolled Kai, but she got in a ton of kicks on Baszler, who was her old rival in NXT, and she sold an injured knee. Gonzalez dominated Baszler on a hot tag and squared off with Jax. Kai's knee collapsed on a GTK, and she slipped attempting another one, giving Baszler the opportunity to lock in the Karafuda clutch. Kai nearly fell into a pin. Then she fought the submission to get to the ropes to break it, uh, but instead she actually tagged in Gonzalez. And I'm not sure I've ever seen someone break the Kirafuda clutch that way before. We've seen the rollover for the pinfall. We've seen a couple different things, but I'm not sure I've ever seen someone have the gumption to climb over either to the ropes or to make a tag before. And I thought that was great. And it was really cool for Shayna Baszler to do that for Dakota Kai, put her over as strong when, let's be honest, she's relatively diminutive compared to Baszler and the Kirafuda clutch really should tap her out right away. That showed a lot for Kai, that she was able to go and do that. Gonzalez accidentally came through and booted the referee instead of Jax while she was on the ring apron. And then she tackled Jax over the announce table, knocking both of them out. Baszler put Kai in the Kirifuda clutch again. And out of nowhere, Adam Pierce runs down with a referee to call the submission victory. Except Dakota Kai was not the legal woman. And Vic Joseph called that out immediately on broadcast, meaning this was a storyline. This was not a screw up from a booking standpoint. The, the part of Kai being the illegal person is what I'm talking about. Obviously, Adam Pierce running in is part of storyline. That doesn't need to really be said. But clearly, they did this on purpose with the wrong person tapping out to end the match, the illegal person. And it's interesting. I don't really have hate for this per se, because it seems to be a legitimate angle that they're doing based on things that happened later in the show, which we're going to talk about momentarily. But you guys know going into this match what I wanted, what most people who watch NXT wanted, and that was Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez to win and be the women's tag team champions. Now, look, I don't mind a screw job angle here. I could see it culminating in a multi-team match at WrestleMania, such as Jackson Baszler coming in as the champions, against Naomi and Lana, the number one contenders from Raw, against Natalia and Tamina, the number one contenders from SmackDown, and then Kai and Gonzalez, the number one contenders from NXT. Now, you guys know if I had my choice, the team from Raw would be Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose, and the team from SmackDown would be the Riot Squad, but I digress. I do see, I, I do see that booking as a possibility, considering the way 
they're building things up. And that could also lead to NXT winning a main roster title on a really big stage, which would wrap everything up nicely. What happened on the show is William Regal was shown yelling at Pierce backstage. Regal then later said he'll make an announcement on next week's show that will change the landscape of NXT. I sincerely hope it's not another set of tag team titles. We do not need a second women's tag team championship in NXT, despite the fact that the division is stacked and they could totally use it. So if they added the title, I'm not saying it would be the worst thing in the world necessarily, but they already have a women's tag team championship that can go back and forth between brands. And if you really wanted to prop NXT up as a equal, co-equal third brand, put the titles on an NXT team and have that team show up on Raw and SmackDown. Allow them to beat some of these main roster women's teams as opposed to the other way around. So that's how I'd book it. I don't know what his announcement is going to be, but man, if another set of titles is going to change the landscape of NXT, I don't know that it will. I mean, I think it, it would be great to have the titles. I just don't know that it's the best idea when you already have a championship that can be used there and then can go back and forth, which again, the men's tag team titles on the main roster right now should probably be multi-brand. It's okay for NXT to have its own tag team title for the men, but Raw and SmackDown, I mean, if I asked you in 15 seconds to name the champions, could you do it? I don't know that you could, right? Like you would have to at least think briefly, oh yeah, it's the Dirty Dogs who we barely see with the titles. And oh yeah, it's her business. Even though her business has been champion for a good period of time. You have to think like, well, wait, is it New Day? No, it's not. Like that's how irrelevant the tag team division is for the men right now on Raw and SmackDown that you actually would at least have to give it a little thought. So the last thing we need, I think, is another set of tag team titles for the entire company. But okay, I'm repeating myself. Let me move on to something I loved from NXT, which is the way goes to therapy. Holy shit. This was laugh out loud funny. Johnny Gargano was wild saying Austin Theory was in denial. Indy Hartwell was doodling indie wrestling Loomis and making multiple horny teenager puns, which was just really freaking funny. The therapist told Gargano he was projecting and he said he wouldn't be therapied on, so he got kicked out. I mean, come on. This is such good shit. So freaking funny. Gargano was texting while not in the room, so the therapist kicked out everyone except Theory. The therapist said she spoke with Loomis. Theory was confused because Loomis doesn't speak. But the therapist said Loomis called him obnoxious and annoying and a whole bunch of other demeaning and insulting things. He started breaking down crying comedically and then ran out of the room, like yell crying, like you would see a teenager do in like a a comedy or something like that, like like a sitcom. And Gargano comes back in, big smile on his face to give the therapist like a grand for doing a great job. It was so fantastic. Look, I love like Roman Reigns is great and, you know, Drew McIntyre is doing a really good job. I'm a huge Big E fan. I like Keith Lee. Kenny Omega is fantastic. There's a lot of good stuff to like in wrestling. Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair. The Way right now is my number one favorite thing in all of professional wrestling. It's hysterically funny. Johnny Gargano is doing a great job at showing so much range for his character. Candice LeRae does great playing off of him as like, yeah, my husband is ridiculous, but I'm married to him and... I've learned to deal with it. And he's also making me a little bit ridiculous as well. And the whole idea of adults in Austin Theory and Indy Hartwell being basically teenage children to Gargano and Candice LeRae, it just works so well. It's one of the most unique and most interesting factions that we've seen in a long time. And I'm totally 100% here for it. Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch fought Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher in a non-title match. Thatcher took a huge clothesline and landed on the side of his head and neck, gripping his arm. To me, it looked 100% legit when they paused the match, went to commercial, but he was able to continue. Maybe it was a work and I just got worked, but it looked like he seriously hurt himself. Maybe he had a stinger or something like that. There was a short stretch without tags, which was annoying, but all four guys laid in strikes really hard, not piped in. The legit crowd there was chanting, this is awesome. That's how good the match was. As Thatcher went for a tag late, Imperium suddenly appeared atop the ramp, giving the champions the opening for an elevated DDT and the win. Again, it was a non-title match. Strong wrestling here, 
but not an overly compelling match. You never really thought Champa and Thatcher were going to win. Later backstage, Champa said Thatcher had to forget his past with Imperium. And what they're referring to there for people who don't know is Thatcher was part of a faction over in Germany called Ringkampf, which was led by Walter. I think he was one of three primary members uh, of that group in WXW, which is a promotion owned by Walter. So they were kind of referring back to that. Imperium is largely a takeoff of that faction in NXT and NXT UK. Obviously, Walter is still in NXT UK as the champion. The other three members of Imperium right now are in NXT. We also saw later in the show, Alexander Wolf, a member of that group, talking to Killian Dane, his former Sanity tag team partner. Now, Wolf, not only is he in Imperium, but he has some ties back to Ringkampf from WXW. They were in the background in like the training area while uh, LA Knight was walking to the ring. So that was another tease. So the idea that Imperium could grow substantially by adding Thatcher, maybe adding Dane Walter coming over, you have an unstoppable faction. Like that would be absolutely huge. There's also the possibility that Thatcher and Dane team up with Champa to take down the other three guys. Like I could see that all happening as well. So definitely interesting. Really curious how all that's going to play out. There was a solid backstage segment that was taped before NXT with MSK that set up the Thatcher-Champa match against Lorcan and Birch. Wesley has reportedly broke his hand. He did so apparently last week. He's going to be out of action for a little bit. That explains the grizzled young veteran's attack angle. I'm sorry, the Wesley thing happened two weeks ago. So that explains the attack angle from GYV last week. It's really unfortunate. MSK was on a roll. The title was supposed to be on the line here. With MSK, you would assume winning. Uh, NXT really needed to strike while the iron was hot with them. It doesn't seem like they're going to be able to do that now due to the injury. But hopefully he's back soon. It is. I don't mean to diminish it, but it's just a broken hand, meaning those can generally heal in weeks or a couple of months and not you know, exceptionally long-term. And what I would really love for them to do is get Nash Carter in singles matches with Wesley at his side. There's no reason to completely take them off TV when you still have one guy who can wrestle. So I definitely hope NXT does that. Hell, I would even give Nash Carter like a cruiserweight championship shot against Santos Escobar. But get them on TV, keep them on TV. Don't forget about MSK just because one guy is recovering. You don't want fans to be longing for them and then kind of forget that they're as hot as they were. You want to keep them hot is what I would do. Ember Moon faced Aaliyah in a singles match. Robert Stone was hysterical, having flashbacks when he saw Shotzi Blackheart's tank. Moon won with the Eclipse. It was a fine match, nothing special. There was a video package for Swerve, who was in a studio, and it was absolute fire. You could feel the character get more serious and almost hardened, I guess, by his experience. Definitely the best promo Swerve has cut so far in NXT, and that's saying something, because when they do give him mic time, He's really good and he's cut some good promos before, but this was the best. It was a good video package. I hope they remix his look though because the shiny silver, like fifth element look doesn't really work with in-studio rapper with a grill. I've never really understood how that plays into each other. And the Isaiah Swerve Scott logo, I'm not gonna describe it because it wouldn't be appropriate to describe, but if you look at it, you know what the thought is of it. And it's just ugly. Like there's so many people that have so many better logos right now. Cameron Grimes being one of them. We're going to talk about him in a second. The Isaiah Swerve Scott logo. You just got to change it up. I mean, use something coming out of the Swerve City podcast. Like use something similar to that. Don't use what you currently have. It's not good. Uh, LA Knight hit the ring for the first time in the ring. You know, all of his other promos have either been outside the ring or from his house or the car or whatever. His logo looked like an old SmackDown graphic. It was white and blue, and it just had that exact same look. He called himself a one-man revolution who isn't about Flash, but instead about beating the hell out of people because he's the last of a dying breed. This promo was like a hundred times better than his first three promos. Even if you combine them, this thing was a hundred times better. It's the first time I've actually cared about him as a character. He seems like a bit of an outlier in NXT Given his presence, he has like a main roster type of presence and the character is very antithetical to everything else that goes on in NXT, which is more grunge and dark and and old school wrestling. LA Knight is very flashy. So I think that's okay. 
It's more along the lines of a glorious, like a Robert Roode type of deal. It'll be interesting to see how this develops, but I do you know, maintain that his gimmick being like, I wear all blue and my logo looks like SmackDown and I'm a flashy Hollywood type of guy combined with a really bad ring name, LA Knight. It's just a strange package to introduce a guy. I think it's one of the worst introductions we've gotten so far in NXT, but I do have to give credit where it's due because the promo was strong. And now I understand why people praised Eli Drake so much for his mic work. It was really good. Cameron Grimes faced off against Bronson Reed in a singles match earlier in the show. Grimes was flaunting his money and William Regal said he had to pay for striking a crew member, not with money, but with a match. Reed made his entrance as LA Knight was leaving and they stared at each other. Grimes came out to the Josiah Williams rap entrance that they were using in his vignette from the last couple of weeks that I talked about. I said, I loved it. I said, it needs to be his entrance theme. It's his entrance theme. Great move. The graphics were really cool. Grimes got a new logo that has like a stock market chart going up. It was just a really great semi-repackaging of this character. He badly needed it. And this is a very fresh, good direction for him to go. Uh, Reed hit a tope suicida when Grimes tried to dip out midway through the match. LA Knight came back late and knocked Reed off the top rope, letting Grimes hit the cave-in for the win. Knight getting involved and at least sets up his first feud, but there's no way he loses right away to Reed. That would make no sense. It felt like Reed was ready for a push a couple months ago, and now it just seems like everything's kind of stalled for him again. And this happens. We've seen this in NXT where you get Keith Lee or Dijak and they come in and you're getting excited for them to get pushed. It stalls, they lose a couple matches. The next thing you know, three, four months later, they're finally getting pushed. So I'm guessing that's what's kind of going down with Bronson Reed right now. You can argue Grimes needed to capitalize on his new character for a win. You could argue that LA Knight needs someone to feud with who's legitimate. So it was really a two for one. There were two reasons for Reed to lose and only one reason for him to win. So I guess you kind of have to go with the loss, but I wasn't a fan. I wish they could have used someone else in that spot. Caden Carter cut a pretty decent, short, strong promo backstage about taking out Zia Lee next week as retribution for injuring Casey Catanzaro. Casey legit has a partially torn LCL and will be out of action for a bit. So that is why they did the injury angle last week. And now the presumption is that Caden will probably get kayfabe injured here, giving them some time off. And you guys know I've said it a million times. Um, they're fine in NXT, but I think they'd be a really good low-card tag team that could learn a lot on the main roster. So if Xia takes them both out and they use this to elevate them and bring them over to, let's say, SmackDown or Raw, I actually think that would be a really good decision. So we'll see what happens there. And lastly, Legado del Fantasma attacked Brizango before their match with Everrise. Then they chased Everrise out of the ring. Santos Escobar attacked Everrise from behind, grabbed the mic, and said not to mistake his loss last week against Karrion Cross for weakness. It was a great redemption segment for them as a group, but I'm still unsure of what they do next, given that Legato is not in the tag team title picture and Escobar is far and away the top dog in the cruiserweight division, but he still needs to move up. He has to move on. I know I'm repetitive. I say it all the time, but I just don't know what they're going to do with these guys if they can kick everyone's ass except for the biggest guy carrying cross, right? At some point, Escobar needs to lose this title and they need to move on as a group but I don't know what it is. Maybe they're just going to say, hey, take the title off of him, move him all up to a main roster spot. And maybe that's why that they aren't progressing towards the tag team titles and are not progressing towards the North American Championship or the NXT title. But somehow these guys remain great and impress every time they're in the ring and every time that Santos is on the mic, yet are still underutilized somehow in NXT. So you guys know I'm a huge fan of Legato. Del Fantasma, and I really want to see more from them. So we'll see where this goes. So that's it for NXT. Before we get to AEW, I did want to talk briefly about New Japan Pro Wrestling because John Moxley had finally his United States Championship defense on NJPW Strong against Kenta. Mox got DDT'd onto Kenta's briefcase, hit with the title, and elbow dropped through a table, just beating the 20 count as a big portion of the match happened outside the ring. Mox kicked out of a coup de gras and they countered each other's finishers. Kenta gave Mox double birds twice and Mox basically just hit him with Death Rider to win in about 14 minutes. It was a decent match, probably like three or 3.5 stars. 
but it was short and really anticlimactic given the buildup. So I was surprised to see it happen that way with things opening opening up for travel. I understand why they didn't take the title off Moxley, but it kind of seemed like Kenta needed it. And you don't necessarily know when Moxley's going to get back over there. Maybe Dominion in June, that might be the plan. Obviously, things are opening up with AEW and NJPW working together. But Moxley's also about to go on paternity leave, we assume, for some point, with Renee about to give birth in the coming months. So how does that affect his United States Championship over with New Japan? How does that affect what happens at AEW Revolution on Sunday? That's what we're going to get into next. Before we talk about Revolution, we do have to talk about AEW Dynamite, and it was specially titled Crossroads this week. Shaq and Jade Cargill faced Cody and Red Velvet in the opening match of the show. It was really cool seeing Shaq make a wrestling entrance. Like, you know he's huge, but he absolutely towered over Cody, who really sold well for him uh, throughout the entire match. Austin Gunn hit Shaq with a chair for absolutely no reason. Jade had a really nice fallaway slam and a spinebuster. She looked pretty decent, and Red Velvet hit a good moonsault as well. But otherwise, they're wrestling. It wasn't particularly impressive, but it was kind of nice to see that she has skill and that it'll be something for Jade to build upon. They got two tables, the women, to set up outside. It took absolutely forever. QT Marshall had to help them. Shaq hit a powerbomb. Cody basically no-sold it. Then he kind of half-body slammed Shaq. Shaq was too early for his match-ending cue, but eventually they got it right as Cody jumped over the top rope with Shaq standing on the ring apron and put the big man through two tables. What a huge fucking bump by Shaquille O'Neal. Killer spot. Jade hit Red Velvet with Beth Phoenix's glam slam for the win. Shaq was basically dead with his eyes closed outside the ring. The wrestling was mediocre, but the spots were fantastic. And big credit to Shaq. I mean, you gotta give it up for a guy his size, his age, taking a double table bump from the ring apron. I mean, that's just ridiculous, the fact that he did that. He went all out, no pun intended, for this. It made AEW look good. It made Shaq look good. It was just a lot of fun to see the big man take a bump like that. It was a good ratings ploy by AEW to put this right in the front of the show to get people to watch. It's usually They usually have their biggest audience at the beginning of the show and at the very end of the show. And putting this in the main event didn't make any sense. They also had Shaq loaded into an ambulance, which was also a good ratings ploy. But it was stupid to kind of have the doors closed, doors open, and then he disappears and Tony Schiavone doesn't know what's going on. Shaq is not supernatural. Like, I know he was Kazam, but he's not like this special dude who can teleport at seven foot two or however tall he is. And then AEW never paid it off. Like they said, we'd get an update on Shaq later in the show. They never said anything. He's okay. He's at the hospital. Um, He was able to walk away on his own, you know, under his own power. Nothing. He was just dead with his eyes closed outside the ring, presumably got stretchered into an ambulance and we never hear about him again. So, you know, that kind of goes to show some of the sloppiness that we get from AEW at times. They do something really good, but then they just kind of like do a little bit too much and ruin it. If they just had Shaq kind of like stretchered out and then backstage, he gets up off the stretcher and gets cleared and he's able to stand tall and be Big Diesel. Like that's enough. That's all you really need. But they kind of just had to take it a little bit too far. And that was unfortunate. Also from AEW Dynamite, two things that didn't have much to do with Revolution. Pac and Ray Phoenix beat two jobbers. AEW really smartly used this in the second segment to show off two of their most exciting wrestlers for people who are still tuned in, who are casual fans. They won in like one minute. Uh, They also got FTR and Tully Blanchard defeating Jurassic Express in a six-man tag team match. JJ Dillon was there. The best part of the match was Tully feigning doing a tope suicida. So that was really funny. There was a really awful staged double German suplex that was just absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't even believe FTR did it. Tully did a decent job. The match was not good, at least in my opinion. A guy disguised as a cameraman helped the heels win as Tully was the spike on a spike pile driver to beat Luchasaurus. You knew before he revealed himself it was Sean Spears. He had blonde hair this time. So he keeps going and coming back and changing gimmicks and it's just the same guy, right? 
Uh, Arn Anderson came out and did the four horsemen gesture for no reason to J.J. Dillon. And then he just walked away. And, you know, some nostalgia, I guess, for everyone else. But that, that was pretty much what happened on Dynamite that did not have to do with AEW Revolution, of which we will get into the ultimate preview for that show right now. The buy-in match, Thunder Rosa and Rio against Britt Baker and Rebel. They're also teasing potentially that Rebel could be injured, so Britt Baker may have a surprise tag team partner. So I, this predicting this match is tough because Thunder Rosa and Rio really should win. You have not built Britt Baker enough where she should take this victory, especially when she lost head-to-head. Um, Rebel would be the person to take the fall if she's available, if she's able to be used here. However, I could see if Baker needs a tag team partner, AEW bringing in Thea Trinidad, the former Zelina Vega, as that partner. And if that happens and it's a big debut, then I would definitely pick Britt Baker and Thea Trinidad, if it is her, to get the victory. So I can't really give you, I hate giving the 50-50 pick, but that is the pick. It's Thunder Rosa and Rio. If it's not Zelina Vega, if she does show up and join this match for the buy-in, which I think would be a pretty smart move to push people into the pay-per-view. Just, oh, wow, look who showed up. Someone else you recognize. Then I do think Britt Baker and uh, Thea Trinidad would win. So that's the booking. That's the pick. The next two matches we're going to talk about together. It's the Casino Tag Team Battle Royal for a tag team number one contendership and Adam Hingman Page against Matt Hardy in a big money match. I could have sworn they just did one of these tag team battle royals on Dynamite that Jericho and MJF won for the number one contendership. For me, there is no reason to have a nine match pay-per-view card forcing all of these teams on the show. AEW pay-per-views, they give you your money's worth from a match standpoint and a time standpoint. But man, a show going like four, four and a half hours. This is shit we were criticizing WWE for over the last couple of years until they finally figured it out and started doing like three hour flat pay-per-views, give or take 15 minutes. So like a four, four and a half hour pay-per-view that goes until 1230 or something on a Sunday night. I don't need it. I don't think this match is appropriate or necessary. I'm sure it'll be pretty good. Uh, I don't even have a prediction to make because basically every tag team in the show is is in there except for the ones that are otherwise competing. I guess maybe I would pick like Death Triangle, Ray Phoenix and Pac since they were featured on the Dynamite Go Home show. So I'll go with them as my pick. Hangman Page and John Silver on Dynamite defeated Matt Hardy and Mark Quinn in a tag team match. Dynamite was a really good show, but I had zero interest in this match and just wanted it to end. It was the main event. They didn't even need the match to happen in the first place. Hangman and Silver worked great together and Hangman won with a buckshot lariat. Hardy attacked Hangman with a mic. Then there was a show-ending brawl as usual for AEW go-homes. It just didn't seem necessary. I'll explain what I wish would have been in that spot instead, but this just didn't seem like it was it. As far as the match goes... I guess I would pick Hangman Page. I just, even if there's interference, I don't know what the benefit ultimately would be of Hardy going over. At least Page would be beating a big name veteran in Matt Hardy. So yeah, we'll take Page winning this match. There's a tag team match, Miro and Kip Sabian against Orange Cassidy and Chuck Taylor. So this is the culmination of this exceedingly long feud. All started because, I guess, I forgot even who it was, if it was Chuck or or. OC, I don't even remember who it was, honestly. Uh, One of them ran into a video game and broke it. Trent, maybe it was, I don't remember. Uh, Miro and Kip have to win this. Just like, I I can see why they would put Orange Cassidy or Chuck Taylor over because Kip can take the fall. But Miro, his, his debut has been so rough already to this point. I would like to see him beat Orange Cassidy clean in this match. Or at least beat Chuck clean, someone. Hit his finishers, do the accolade, get the win. So I'm going to pick Miro and Kip, the heels going over in this tag team match. There wasn't really anything on Dynamite to uh, preview it. The women's championship will be on the line with Hukaru Shida defending. They're the finals of the AEW Women's Eliminator Tournament determined that number one contender. And it was Ryo Mizunami defeating Nyla Rose. Rose missed a flying senton. Mizunami hit a leg drop on the ring apron. Rose hit a Death Valley driver for a near fall. Mizunami eventually hit a leg drop off the top rope for the win. The wrestling was fine, but it was a lot, really slow in the match. 
Cheetah against Mizunami should be a great match at Revolution. It does call back to their history together, presumably, you know, from what I understand in Japan. It just doesn't move the needle for me at all. It's again, yes, it's the number one contender in a tournament that was told over a period of time. Three quarters of the matches were not on TV. I would say that Rio is a, Mizunami that is, is a relative unknown for most fans. And because of that, there's really no storyline going into the match. So I have Hikaru Shida winning and defending her title. They got to figure out a way to make the women's division and the championship in particular more compelling. So we got, let's see here, one, two, three, four matches left on the card. And I'm going to go with the match that they say will start the show. I actually had this as the co-main event initially, but apparently the tag team championship, Young Bucks against Chris Jericho and MJF will open the main revolution card. Chris Jericho and MJF had a press conference on Dynamite. Jericho opened the third segment of the show after that uh, tag team match I mentioned with Pac and Ray Phoenix, which was smart to put another familiar face right up front for fans who were staying tuned after Shaq to see what AEW was all about. This was entertaining, but it would have been better as a straight promo. MJF was on absolute fire. They trotted out Conrad Thompson and Eric Bischoff again. The Young Bucks came out and they were actually pretty dorky. It's almost as if the entire purpose of this story is for them to praise their father on national television. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but as executive vice presidents of the company, it seems like it's almost selfish and forced that they're doing it this way. Matt said Jericho would be jerking the curtain at the Performance Center if AEW didn't exist. Take that as you will. Then there was a brawl. The Good Brothers set up tables. Nick jumped off the entrance, like that big square entrance onto Ortiz. And then Matt jumped off the stage into, I guess it was Santana. I didn't even really figure out who was on that table. It was chaos for the sake of chaos. It's going to be a great match. Uh, I think Jericho and MJF against the Young Bucks is going to be exciting. I don't see why you would quickly take the titles off the Young Bucks after quickly taking them off FTR. So I'm going to go with the Young Bucks retaining here, celebrating with their father, and it being a nice feel-good moment on pay-per-view. There is a face of the revolution ladder match for the number one contendership for the TNT title. Cody against Scorpio Sky, Lance Archer, uh, Penta L0M, Max Caster, and a surprise entrant. On Dynamite, Max Caster defeated 10 for a spot. This was just a horrible match, in my opinion, in a double segment. Jack Evans took out 10 with the boombox to help Caster win. I know some people like him, but there is no reason Caster should be in this match with all of the talent that AEW has at its disposal. There's no reason 10 should have been in it either. So if he had won the match, that wouldn't have made a difference for me. And there's also no reason that Scorpio Sky, who has been completely absent from TV, should be in it. It, I don't get it at all. Like, he's a good wrestler. If he was in storylines and built up to it, I'd be down. But he hasn't been. So I just don't understand it. I'd have maybe used Pac in this point or like an Eddie Kingston, or Powerhouse Hobbs, considering I know they're having the street fight, but he's not in the street fight. There's a lot of other guys I would have used in this spot than Max Caster and Scorpio Sky. It just doesn't really make sense why either of them are in the match. Caster, okay, he won his way in. Like, at least there's reason for that. But Sky just comes in and out of nowhere. And look, I don't know who's going to win, right? Like it could really be anyone. Generally, the surprise entrant is the person who you think goes over. But given the pushes, given the booking of all this type of stuff, how things have been going recently, I think it might be Lance Archer coming out on top. So he will be my pick of the five guys that are actually announced for it. But I would probably go with the surprise entrant if I knew who it was. And I thought they could legitimately, you know, be someone that would make sense winning the entire thing. Now, before we continue with the final two matches, there was a big announcement on Dynamite by Paul White, the former Big Show, in a conversation with Tony Schiavone. So let's talk about that segment. So White gets introduced. His gimmick is no more BS. Get it? BS. Bullshit. Big Show. Yeah. uh, Not good. Zero point zero. He made a bad joke and then screamed that AEW would be signing a Hall of Fame worthy talent on Sunday during Revolution. That's a pretty big announcement. 
And I'm very, very curious to find out who's the, who that's going to be. Tony Khan said on a podcast or something on Thursday, right before I taped this show, that it's legitimately a gigantic name and it's going to be huge and it's true. And he did use those words, it's true, which we'll come back to. So unless it's truly someone shocking, and the two shocking people for me would be Brock Lesnar or CM Punk. And I guess you could throw John Cena in there, but that's a 0.0 chance. It's not going to be John Cena. So unless he is ponying up the money it would take to sign Brock Lesnar that Vince McMahon would not match for WWE, unless it's that, it's not really gigantic, I would say. CM Punk would be huge. I know those are similar words, but they're not exactly the same words. CM Punk would be huge, but I don't really see that happening at this point. You kind of want someone who's been wrestling, I think, if you're going to make a major signing or at least someone who appears to have been working out and getting in shape and getting ready. So the only other guys that come to mind that are big name, Hall of Fame worthy free agents, basically, not signed to a major company, are Christian, Kurt Angle, and Rob Van Dam. Now, Tony Khan's usage of it's true, you know, that could lead you to believe it's Kurt Angle. But we've seen Kurt, right? We saw him in WWE. We saw him in the Corbin match. We saw him wrestle. This is supposedly going to be someone they signed to a multi-year deal. I know Kurt's a big name and there could be some utilization for him, but in, in, you know, in a role maybe similar to what Big Show and Sting are doing. So, so I think there's value if they do sign Kurt, but I just don't know that that's a really good idea. Rob Van Dam is, I mean, after years of punishment and abuse, I, I think he'd be a great person to show up and be in some specific matches. If he was the surprise entrant, in the number one contendership match, that would be pretty cool. But I don't think a couple of years of Rob Van Dam is really going to help your company. Christian is the one name out of all those guys who I think would really make sense and make a difference and be a valuable signing in 2021. We've seen what Edge can do. He can still go a little bit. If Christian's been cleared, I think he can go. He can put a lot of people over and be a, a really good person to do that. Now, Why do I say Christian? Number one, the terminology used was Hall of Fame worthy. And Christian has talked about extensively not getting into the WWE Hall of Fame. So I think that is interesting. The other thing is Christian's talked about coming back and wrestling. And I don't think there's really any proof that he signed to WWE at this time. The other thing that we need to consider is Hall of Fame worthy could mean that, but not specifically about wrestling. So it could be someone like, Henry Cejudo from UFC, or a Hall of Fame type of person from another type of discipline. I don't really know who that would be. I'm kind of just spitballing here. It could also be a Hall of Fame worthy talent coming out of a Ring of Honor or an Impact or New Japan or another promotion that we're just not really thinking about that's a really big name that we don't know their contract is expired. It doesn't necessarily have to be a former WWE talent, although that is where your mind goes initially when you hear something like this. The last thing I'll say about it is this. Generally, AEW's biggest surprises come when they don't say anything. Think about the debuts of John Moxley and Sting. It was not, hey, at the end of Double or Nothing, there's going to be a really big surprise. Or, hey, on the show, I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, what the name of the show was, there's going to be a legend making his AEW debut. No, Moxley just came out of nowhere. Sting made his entrance out of nowhere and fans were absolutely thrilled. Whenever AEW promotes a surprise or promotes something as a big deal, it generally does not live up to the hype and it actually falls short. So that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about this going into the pay-per-view. If it was a really big deal, like a Brock Lesnar or a CM Punk, I don't think they would tease it. If it's a little bit lesser of a deal, but still maybe something that's really good, like the other people I mentioned, Christian or Kurt Angle, CM Punk, Rob Van Dam, sorry, not CM Punk, Rob Van Dam, um, that is something that they might announce and preview. So every everything that you kind of need to keep in mind going into it, I, I, I'm i going in with high expectations because 
despite them kind of screwing me in the past with promising the moon and delivering the earth, they're, they're really promoting this hard. The way Paul White said it, the way Tony Khan said it on the podcast, I think he used the word gigantic. That's big stuff. Those are big words. So let's see how they deliver and what it ends up being. Two matches left on the card. We have the street fight. Sting and Darby Allen against Brian Cage and Ricky Starks. Sting cut a boilerplate promo on Dynamite. Starks came out and gave Sting some credit, but then said he's no icon and then slapped him across the face. Sting got the Scorpion Deathlock. And then the rest of Team Taz like meandered. They methodically made their way out to the ring. Cage was about to powerbomb Sting when Darby Allen ran in for a shotgun dropkick. It was as good as anything else that they've done to build this match, which is to say not particularly good. Um, I do think, I think it was last week I said was decent and it was good to see Sting move around. It was good to see Sting move around here also. I originally thought this was going to be a cinematic match, but considering how much Sting has been doing in the ring over the last couple of weeks, it's clear that they think and he thinks he can go. And I think that they're going to do it live. It being a street fight will help him a lot. It'll allow him to take some punishment and kind of be down for a while. Ultimately, I just don't see any way out of this other than Sting and Darby Allen winning. And I have to assume that Ricky Starks is the one who takes the fall. So a little predictable, sure, but there's plenty of excitement to go around and, you know, this should be a really good match. I expect these guys to deliver ultimately. And I expect to be very um, bullish on Sting, maybe even more so than I have been going into it because I think he's going to be able to work pretty well and if he is able to do that, then the idea of him having a match with Cody at an upcoming pay-per-view or some of these other guys in AEW, Chris Jericho and Sting, I think there's a lot that they can do with him if they space it out and do it over a long term. And last but not least, the AEW World Championship, Kenny Omega against John Moxley in an exploding barbed wire death match. AEW ran a package about the deathmatch on Dynamite featuring Onita, basically the inventor of it, the king of it. I thought that was a really nice touch, but the package was just okay. It was the only thing they did to sell the main event of the pay-per-view on Dynamite, which I think is absolute insanity. I hate when NXT does this. I say it all the time. I criticize NXT for this all the time, including earlier on this show, and I hate it more for AEW given that they only do four pay-per-views a year. I want to see Omega and Moxley. I want to see a barbed wire bat. I want to see some type of aggression. These guys should have taken up the entire final 10 minutes of Dynamite. There was no reason for that Paige Hardy match to exist on the show. They did more, a little bit more to build to it on the Countdown to Revolution show that aired from 10 to 11 p.m., but that's an entirely separate program. What if someone didn't DVR it or they didn't know? Or what if they watch the two hours of Dynamite and they're like, all right, this is enough as a first-time viewer. I don't need to watch this other show. You only got a glimpse of their rivalry. You only got a glimpse of what this match possibly can be on your main two-hour go-home show. So I have to give criticism for that. Now, as far as the match goes, man, I'm excited. Okay, so I have seen exploding barbed wire death matches before, but it has been... I want to say at least 20 years or 15 years, 15 to 20 years since I've seen one. I used to, I didn't tape trade, but I did have a newsletter back in the day, an online newsletter called Top Rope Newsletter uh, when I was a kid, actually, to kind of give it away. I think a lot of people didn't know that I was actually very, very young when I was operating that newsletter. It was very, very successful. If I do say so myself, I'll Barry Horowitz right there, a little pat on my back. But back then, I used to exchange ads in the newsletter for tapes. So I wasn't a tape trader, but I did collect them. So I have a huge um, box, I think, of VHS tapes, ECW, Japanese death matches, crazy shit. And some exploding barbed wire death matches are among those. So I've seen it before, but I haven't seen it in such a long time that I forget if it was violent for me as a kid or if it was truly violent for being violent. I don't think AEW, at least this is my guess, I don't think they're gonna go to the level that they have for some of these in Japan, the extensive amounts of blood. I think AEW's learned a little bit of a lesson where you can show color, you can blade and get you know 
stuff like that in matches. But when you go to the extremes, the true extremes of the blood, it turns a lot of people off. That said, this is a barbed wire match. There are explosions. I just don't know what to expect here. I don't know whether I'm going to love it, whether I'm going to hate it, or whether at the end I'm going to say, well, that is what it was and I appreciate it for what it was, but it wasn't my taste. So going in, I have a completely open mind. Now, what I will tell you is Kenny Omega versus John Moxley, fantastic, right? A great match on paper. Their first and second matches, I think that they've had, I believe it's only been two so far, were both very, very good to great. So I know I'm going to be excited. But with the ring ropes being barbed wire, it's going to change the complexity of the booking and the match quality. And it's not going to be obviously a traditional wrestling match. So I don't know what that's going to be like with these two guys. You know, you think of Kenny Omega, how he's rejuvenated himself. And largely a significant part of that has been in ring ability and showing that he is the best bout machine again. John Moxley has put on pretty good matches. Nothing I don't think that's too spectacular with him as an individual, right? In AEW, but them together is gold. So how will it look them working together in this type of match with this type of stipulation? I just don't know. As far as who's going to win, it's up in the air for me. On one hand, they are clearly pushing us in the direction that Kenny Omega is going to win. John Moxley will get blown up, which will give a reason for his absence while Renee finishes her pregnancy, has the child, and then Moxley eventually makes his way back. But on the other hand, this is a freaking exploding barbed wire death match. And if there's any match that John Moxley should win, it's this, right? Like it's he's the king of extreme now these days. In 2021, when you think of extreme mainstream wrestling, John Moxley's the guy. And Kenny Omega's really not that guy. So you kind of go into it thinking Moxley should win. He should take the title. It makes all the sense in the world that this would be a good excuse, a good reason for Kenny Omega to lose. The way I look at it is, this is a no rules match. Exploding barbed wire death match. You got the good brothers. You got other people who could potentially come to Kenny Omega's aid and help him. So ultimately, I think Moxley's just going to get overwhelmed. He'll, the, the numbers advantage will be too much if they go in that direction. Or he gets caught. Something happens. He accidentally sets off an explosion and Omega wins and retains the title. I do think it makes a lot of sense for Moxley to basically say, if I go out, this is the way I want to go out. Because it is a good reason for someone to be out of action for a significant period of time and then bring them back. And I don't know Renee's due date and you know, not intimately involved, nor have I calculated any of that. But if that's the direction that they want to go, it would make sense for them to do it here. And I think you have some other people who are ready-made challengers for Kenny Omega, namely for me at least, Hangman Page. I think you could start building to that match right away, especially with the Bullet Club dynamics that still exist. So that's my final pick, Kenny Omega retaining the title against Jon Moxley. That means I go into this pay-per-view with no title changes expected from me. And it looks like there could be at least two, but as many as three major debuts. That sets up a really exciting, really nice pay-per-view. And I'm thrilled to be able to watch it on Sunday and help break it down for all of you on this show. We will have instant analysis of AEW Revolution as soon as that show goes off the air Sunday night. The Silver King will be here breaking it down with Chris Vanini. We're going to be talking about everything that happens on the show, where AEW goes from there, and certainly we will spend a lot of time on whoever this gigantic announcement is and the John Moxley versus Kenny Omega exploding barbed wire deathmatch. As far as this show, the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, in addition to that instant analysis, we may do a little bit of a pre-show. So it would be audio only, it would be live, and we would be able to communicate that through our Twitter account. So don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. If we do a pre-show, it'll be before AEW's kickoff show. So we'll time it right. It'll probably be just 30 minutes, quick talking, uh, I don't know if it'll be just me, me and Chris, maybe Blackjack Crosby. I don't know who will be on it, but we'll do something fun, um, hopefully before the show. Uh, again, we will have the instant analysis immediately after AEW Revolution goes off the air. And then we will be back after that on Tuesday for our normal WWE episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So 
a lot of wrestling still to go this week. I'm excited to bring it all to you. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this show. That's your ultimate preview for AEW Revolution and our full breakdown of AEW Dynamite and NXT from this week. With that, the Silver King is going to depart with just three final words. Bye for now.